Hi everyone! Welcome to the Movie Good or Movie Bad podcast. Today, the theme of this episode is conflicted interests, and James will be speaking about the 2023 Palme d'Or winner, Anatomy of a Fall, and the film that should have received a nomination and win for Best International Film last year at the Oscars, Decision to Leave. And now, here's your host, James Willey. Hey, Haley, thank you for that intro, and welcome back, everyone, to the Movie Good or Movie Bad podcast. This is episode 8, and we're talking about conflicted interests. We're talking about two films where people uh, kind of should have been reflecting more on the people that they're examining, the people that they're thinking about, and uh, for various reasons, they develop some kind of bias, and they're unable to examine that. I think this is a really cool idea for an episode, a very unique kind of double feature, and uh, two films that I've just been really dying to talk about. Uh, One is Decision to Leave, one of my favorite films from last year, easily in my top five from last year. A fantastic mystery film, fantastic film from Park Chan-wook, one of the greatest directors of all time, one of the pioneers of uh, South Korean cinema. Anatomy of a Fall, the Palme d'Or winner from this year, a film that's starting to get a lot more praise and a lot more attention now that's having a wider theatrical release. I understand that both these films are less than accessible. Uh, Specifically, Anatomy of a Fall is just having its theatrical release now. A lot of people are not able to see this in theaters. A lot of people have reached out to me about it. Do not worry, there's no spoilers in this episode. And I think if there were spoilers for Anatomy of a Fall, I do not think it would actually damper your enjoyment of the film. I think it would actually maybe facilitate it a little bit more. Not that I'm going to be doing the spoilers, but I, I, I am going to be naming at least a framing device that I think is helpful to understand what the film is. Uh, I'll kind of leave it at that. Uh, forgive me if you're noticing that I'm wearing a much more formal shirt than I normally do. Uh, obviously, I wear dress down or uh, button downs and things like that whenever I'm doing uh, TikToks and whatever. Uh, I'm wearing a much more formal button up or not really, it's kind of the same, but uh, I typically don't wear these on camera when I'm recording the podcast for our patron. Um, but I, today is work day for me. I was doing a photo shoot for my office. We did some interviews for the practice. And, um, yeah, yeah, just to get our insight and just for the marketing for um, the place that I work. And, uh, yeah, one, I hope that marketing works, too. I really love this shirt. It's super comfy. It looks great. Um, I think black is a fantastic color on me. And uh, (laughs) very, very coincidentally, it matches very well the cover art for Oppenheimer, which I coincidentally made a video about today because I bought the 4K earlier last week. And um, yeah, it's sold out everywhere. So I made a video talking about that and kind of why that's happening. And you can go to my TikTok to understand uh, a bit more of my thoughts about that process. But yeah, my shirt very weirdly matches the Oppenheimer cover. And I noticed that as soon as I I started filming. So that was uh, very, very weird. If you are looking for Oppenheimer on 4K, it is very, very sold out. I know I have some folks who are listening from outside the U.S. um, But if you are in the U.S., it's sold out. At least the 4K is sold out everywhere except Amazon now, but it's being overpriced. Uh, The Blu-ray is available, I believe, at Best Buy and Amazon, and that's kind of it. And uh, yeah, it's slowly diminishing. People are buying it for the holiday season. It is kind of becoming a stocking stuff for a holiday gift. I can't blame them. It was a fantastic film. Just other stuff that's very interesting that you all might want to hear before you get into the episode. Watch this really fascinating documentary called Yellow Door on Netflix. I'll be doing a video on this later uh, for the TikTok, but... It's a documentary about Bong Joon-ho and his friends in college and kind of their shared love of film, how they got into loving film together, the films they watched together, and how that was all kind of facilitated and led to Bong Joon-ho at least making becoming a director, becoming a filmmaker. Really fascinating documentary. It's like 80-something minutes. Go check it out on Netflix. Uh, this, is not, <laughs> this is not a sponsored post. Uh, I just feel really passionate about it. 
uh, definitely something that people should be checking out. I did want to name this too. Uh, I mean, we're kind of at the end of this, but I just want to name a, quite a bit of a haul that I've gotten for Black Friday. Um, as some of you may know, Best Buy is no longer selling Blu-rays. That is a process that's ending. Uh, because of that, I kind of, not want to go big for the last Black Friday, but kind of being mindful of, you know, this is the last time I might be able to buy movies for Black Friday, at least in this way. It is a fairly so-so sale. A lot of this stuff is determined by the studios in terms of what they sell, how much they price it for. It's the reason that you get the Batman on 4K at Walmart, at Best Buy, at Target at Groove, which is a fantastic website. But yeah, it was a fairly lackluster sale. A lot of stuff on sale was sale again this year. A handful of new releases, like Barbie was on sale, Super Mario Brothers, uh, Knock at the Cabin, things like that. Uh, prices were so-so, um, but I, I got a, a nice full, nice handful of things, nice haul of things, and uh, I'm very glad with that, in case this is the last Black Friday that I do buy films. And uh, if you partake in physical media or partake in Black Friday shopping, at least for physical media, I hope that went well. Anyways, let's jump into the topic or the films that we're talking about for today's episode. And we're going to start with Anatomy of a Fall. I know it's the much more recent film. I know it's the film that people are less familiar with. I still think it's important to kind of get <laughs> not get out of the way that I don't want to talk about it. I don't know. I think it's a fun one to talk about first just because it's the one that people know the least about just because it's been out there a little bit less. Uh, so Anatomy of a Fall, I'm going to read the letterbox synopsis and the tagline. So the tagline for this film is, did she do it? I actually want to talk about that in a second, but a woman is suspected of her husband's murder and their blind son faces a moral dilemma as the sole witness. The tagline, did she do it, is very literal to the film Anatomy of a Fall. All throughout this film, we have no idea of an audience if Sandra killed her husband or not. I think it's something that's been very frustrating for several folks, something that leaves people into a lot of confusion. Uh, it led to a commenter being pretty angry or pretty annoyed at the film uh, when I was talking about it and defending it and how much I loved about it. Uh, they were quite frustrated that I did get as much enjoyment as I got out of it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, this is all left very, very unclear. When any kind of trial happens, there's the not just the literal court with the judge and the lawyer and your lawyer, who, by the way, doesn't have to believe you despite them defending you. Uh, there's also the court of public opinion. There's all the reporters. There's all the there's all the people in the stands. There's the jury, right? There's you know, and on top of that, the reporters can also dictate you know how they report on you, how they speak on you, how they kind of frame you to the public. Do they frame you as a menace who's going to do this to their son? Do they frame you as a woman who's being unfairly tried by the criminal justice system who just lost her husband to an accident? It's all very fair stuff to implore about, to to sit in, to digest. And that's something that we have to internally digest as an audience, not just as the people inside the film, but us outside the film. Because trust me, if you have a conversation with someone about Anatomy of a Fall, you all might have very different interpretations of various scenes and isolation of the film as a whole, of various turning points throughout the film. Because trust me, there's various turning points where I truly change my perspective about what was happening. Do I believe Sandra was innocent? Do I believe she was guilty? And I feel like there's maybe a moment every 10 or 15 minutes or so that was kind of like that for me. And I kept constantly questioning this. And as I spoke to another friend who'd watched the film, she had a completely different interpretation of what was going on. And also her opinion kind of changed, I think, a little bit less than mine did. I want to name this. This is such a minute detail. The decision to have Daniel be a blind character is one that's really fascinating and it's one, that could have easily been problematic, and two, also something that, that kind of hints at this additional layer to the analysis of the film. So kind of like how did she do it examines, you know, 
uh, everyone inside the film wondering whether or not Sandra did this crime, but also the audience, us, the viewer, understanding whether or not she did the crime. There, So Sandra is also a, a writer, a book author. It's a little unclear. I think she writes mystery novels, something like that. But it's commented on very frequently throughout the film as we listen to people's recordings speaking about her, as we hear people uh, and interviewers speak about her, as we hear someone talk about her on a talk show. Um Everything that's happening in the movie sounds like one of her books, so there's an extra layer of, like, do we or do we not trust her? And I think that's utterly fascinating. I think it's deeply compelling. And the idea of having a blind son conveniently or coincidentally not being able to see whether or not their father was murdered or fell off a a roof, it sounds like fiction. And I think that adds another layer to the way that we should be uh, analyzing the film. And uh, I think that's it's a very interesting and unique framing device, and I think one that really um, pays off. And it, it's it's also very interesting. It's not that the boy is scapegoated all throughout the film, but regardless of whether or not his father was pushed off the house or did not, uh, he was walking his dog at the time time that, that the accident happens. There's no way he could have known. Like his blindness is so secondary to everything that's happening in the film. And no one kind of names that. And I th- that's very intentional. That's not the director or the writer being problematic or anything like that. That is very intentional to like his blindness is very secondary. Like he can still very much dictate or, or kind of share, you know, this is what my mother and father were like. This is what their arguments were like. This is where I could hear them in the house, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, Milo Machado Grainer, if, if he, oh, if this was a less competitive Oscar year, I wish he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Really, really wish it. And I, I, really wish he could win. Uh, I don't I don't think the chances are likely. This is a film that's also been thrown around a lot of Oscar brackets and, and by pundits, and I, I just don't see it. I think it's a phenomenal film. It deserves the acclaim. It deserves the recognition. In a fantastic year, it would be, it would be nominated kind of the same way that many other films are, but um, I just don't think the Oscars are at a place where they'll, they'll nominate international films in that way. Kind of like the, you know, we had Parasite in 2019, and then um, last year we had All Quiet on the Western Front, and I think Trying All Sadness, you know, kind of getting all these awards outside of uh, Best International Feature. But kind of jumping back to the fact that, you know, us as an audience doesn't know what's going on, how uh, everyone in the film doesn't know quite what's going on with Sandra. That, I think that one, that speaks to the way that we should ideally should examine court cases or, you know, when we're juries and things like that. And, you know, it's a completely separate conversation to talk about. Should there be a jury system? Should we, should that be a paid position for people? Um, are people so flawed that uh, there is no ideal criminal justice system for people to be able to examine whether or not someone did a crime, like a civilian who is not trained to determine, you know, what's legal, what's malintent, right? You know, we have quote unquote, I'm I'm doing the quotes with my finger so you know, the quote unquote body language uh, experts on TikTok who are like, oh, this is what this person means. This is what this person means. And that's, it's just not the case. We don't know why someone shows up that way. If Sandra shows up very sheepish to trial, is it because she's hiding something? Is it because she's anxious? Is it because, uh, as we talk about, this is a big piece of the film. I believe the film takes place in France and she speaks primarily German. And then in their household, they speak English as kind of the common ground. So she is not comfortable 100% speaking in French. There's even a layer of, of interpretation in the film of like whether or not she is even accurately conveying what is happening because she does not speak French very well. You know, what if you get an adjective wrong? What if you get the connotation wrong? Like, it's all very, very um, interesting. In, in other languages, granted, you know, German and France, French, they both have, I believe they're both romantic languages, but... Um, 
there can be different adjectives that don't have quite the same interpretation or the same um, translation in different languages, you know? Um, and I feel like that's important to name as well. You know, there's, there's I, the reason I picked this for conflicted interest is because not only we as an audience have this feeling, but like I said, everyone in that courtroom has different thoughts. And the way that uh, Justine Trier, the, she lingers on the faces of everyone in that courtroom is, is magnificent. It's something that I don't think many filmmakers would be comfortable doing, something that I don't think we get enough of. And she will linger her camera on a, a press person or a reporter or someone in the audience, and it'll linger for five or ten seconds, whereas for most films, that might be a quick cutaway scene to kind of establish background or expositionary kind of information. And in Justine Trier's case, she lingers on that person until we see them reacting, like they sigh or they they grimace or they they grin because they they really support Sandra. And I, I think those things are also important. There's a really fascinating scene later in the film. Um, so as this trial starts, because it takes place in France, they ask her, "Okay, Sandra, you need to speak just French in this trial," and she's like okay, I'll try to do it. I don't know if I can do it. Partway through, they kind of give up. They, she she appeals to be like, oh, I'm just not comfortable speaking. Can I speak German? And all of a sudden, it's just kind of given the okay. And it's, one, I think that's a completely reasonable thing to do and recognize your humanity. And two, it's so interesting to see when uh, th- there's such a lack of concession for her. And once she's able to humanize herself in that courtroom, various people who have that power, whether it's in this case, the judge, the translator, and I think the transcriber, they're all like, okay, let's do it. Let's let her speak German. And uh, it leads to the whole air of possibility of misinterpretation all throughout uh, the rest of the film, which is so fascinating. Uh, and it shows you where the, the bias people have and, and various people are. Speaking of people who I, I really question what they thought of her, uh, I really don't know what Sandra's lawyer thought about her. I spoke to a, a friend about this who saw the film, I think, right before I did. She... Uh, interpreted that there's a, a connotation to their relationship that I'll kind of leave vague. And I picked up on that same connotation, but we assume the relationship had been playing out was so, so different. And I think that says a lot, too, about how we're interpreting the film and, and how uh, Trier is intentionally misleading us in various points. And uh, to have us even question, you know, her lawyer's ability to be, I don't know, competent or, or kind of defend her or or whatnot, it's really exceptional stuff. Um, this film is amazing. I, I'm just going to kind of leave it there. Uh, this is all I can kind of share without giving spoilers. I don't think anything I share will diminish your feelings about the film. Please go check this out once it's available. Uh, my assumption is it'll have a PVOD release or a paid uh, video-on-demand release sometime soon. It's a neon film, so it'll be available on Hulu. My guess is January, February, something like that, but really do check out Anatomy of a Fall if you do have a chance. Yeah. All right, Decision to Leave. I am very, very excited to talk about this. Like I said, this is one of my favorite films from last year. It's a film that not many people saw, have fairly limited theatrical release. If you don't know, it's a movie exclusive to MUBI, uh, M-U-B-I. It's a streaming service that's available all over the world. Um, They carry lots of international films, lots of independent films, and that's kind of their jam, fantastic streaming service. Actually have a yearly subscription. I think it's just one of the most (laughs) wonderful things on the planet. Again, not a a paid ad or anything, just want to shout it out. 
Um, they also do have a Blu-ray release and they have a new 4K release that I believe they're sending to me sometime soon. And uh, yeah, I want to say I watched the Blu-ray of this last night. It looked phenomenal. Looked as good as I saw it in the theater. So anyways, decision to leave. The tagline for this film is the closer you look, the harder you fall. And the synopsis is Hey Jun, a seasoned detective, investigates the suspicious death of a man on a mountaintop. Soon he begins to suspect Seo Rui, this deceased man's wife, while being unsettled by his attraction to her. So that very much frames what this film is. The conflicted interest in this film is the fact that this detective, a master of his work, a master of his trade, and and the film establishes this very well. Um, He is handling various other crimes and kind of cases as he's dealing with this murder trial or this this murder case or suspected murder case. He is very, very competent in all those situations. And the second that he sees Seo Ray, uh, this man's horny brain just completely shuts on and uh, he falls apart. He's completely smitten. He's stumbling over his words. He seems to lose a lot of the cool and kind of a lot of the rigidity that I kind of view in this man. He collapses. He uh, becomes very, very flirtatious, like to the point where um, there's points in the film where they actually cut to his coworkers and like, oh, you know, why is he interacting that way? That's very unprofessional. That's very strange. Or like, he's not like this when we're investigating other people. I just want to say this. This film is directed by Park Chan-wook. Directed Old Boy, directed The Handmaiden, directed Joint Security Area. He is a true master of, of cinema. Um, one of the most impeccable filmographies of all time. A master. Uh, one of the best South Korean directors of all time. One of the best directors of all time. He There was a six-year break between this film and The Handmaiden, which many people love. It's on Amazon Prime. Fantastic queer mystery film. Decision to Leave is just masterful. It, it's not my favorite of his works. It's my second favorite. So <laughs> it's still, it's probably like in my top 50 or so, but um, Decision to Leave is, is just masterful. It's him at a technical level that I don't think he's quite achieved before. There are things that are done in this film with the camera that are just so mind-blowing that I, when I first saw this in theaters i just kind of was in awe of like wait how did he do this shot how do you create this perspective how do you do any of this and some of it is is altered or or augmented by cgi but that's not to the detriment of the film if anything that augments uh the film quite a bit there's a scene in the film where you see the detective uh investigating the woman and he it's in an interrogation room with a one-way mirror and uh somehow the camera is able to sit there center of the room you see all these reflections of them happening and then i'm like wait where is the camera in this scene and easily you could cgi it out but um it's very complicated when it comes to a mirror kind of trick like that and uh, th- there's really fantastic behind the scenes footage i believe it's on the the blu-ray but i did see it back when this film first came out on twitter i believe but a lot of that screen one-way mirror was done through a, a blue screen which is a really fantastic effect and I want to name that uh, I have no idea how long this film took to make. Um, yeah, forgive me. I just cut away to see, see if I can look up the production length. I have no idea. It just says that they film in October 2020, but no idea how long production took. But a similar kind of trick was done in um, Marvel's Moon Knight on Disney+, and that took them apparently 10 months to do that kind of scene. And granted, there's a little bit more technical stuff going there, but um, Park Chan-wook, just a master, just a master. Um, and he immediately establishes just kind of this dynamic between our two um, two leads here. He immediately establishes that um, Hai Jun, our detective, his marriage to his wife, I don't know how to describe it. I wouldn't describe it as tumultuous or 
I would say distant, actually. I was going to not say distant. It, there's a level of distance. There's a level of reluctance. I, I don't know if there's a level of safety. We don't really know why their marriage is the way it is or how they met each other or whatnot. It seems like something is lacking in the relationship. It seems to be some kind of, I don't know, mystery, some kind of thrill. And uh, he's very much kind of thrown into his job, spending all night long uh, doing detective cases, being out as a police officer, being out as a detective. And uh, even in, early in the film, almost crashing his car because he is so tired. Uh, his relationship to his wife is something that is very, very fascinating to me. It's something that we don't get much context for. And honestly, it doesn't really matter because the, the focal point of this film is his relationship to Sao Ray, who, again, very, very smitten. I want to say, one, very attractive couple. Two, amazing chemistry. Just mind-blowing chemistry, like, uh, in a, at a time when so many people are questioning the chemistry of a lot of leads in so many films, especially when a lot of romantic attraction or romantic relationships are being forced in a lot of mainstream studio films, the chemistry between these two is just off the charts. It's it's just a, kind of unreal. I wrote down here <laughs> my imaginary age cap discourse. I thought that the actress who plays Seo Ray, um, Tang Wei, she looks incredibly young. Like, I thought she was in her 20s. I was like, this is very interesting. Like, again, adult. She can make her own decisions. This is a fictional character, whatever. She's, she's like, two years younger than the, the lead actor. So I just want to name that just to shame myself a little bit. Yeah, so I, I had that age gap discourse uh, from about the time that I, I started watching the film once when she appears on screen until uh, at the end when I googled, you know, how old is she? Um, and she's just a... a, a very good-looking uh, woman uh, who looks very, very young. The use of technology in this film is so, so brilliant, and this is thrown around a lot when talking about um, modern cinema. Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Paul Thomas Anderson, a lot of them have really not made films in the modern era. I think Paul Thomas Anderson, his last modern film, might have been uh, Punch Drunk Love, which came out in uh, 2002. Martin Scorsese, geez, I don't think he's made a modern film um, potentially since the 90s. Potentially. I, I have to think about that. And Steven Spielberg, um, uh, absolutely the same. Um, honestly, I, I didn't think about that. But there's a lot of debate about why this is. Do a lot of these directors, particularly, you know, Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, two men who are, you know, 70 plus, are they making films that harken back to an era that they're much more comfortable with? That they films, uh, eras that were explored in films that they loved growing up, you know, or some of that train of thought comes from the fact that they think that these filmmakers are uncomfortable incorporating technology into a film. For instance, if I can, if I'm in a horror movie and a serial killer breaks into my house and I fight them off and they're running away, it's like, oh no, I need to warn so and so in a film in the 90s, like, I don't know, uh, early. If, you know, Scream, like maybe the first one, if there's a scenario like that, they might run to this person's house rather than uh, try to call them. You know, it's like, oh, the landline's cut, you know. But in the era of the, or in the modern era, you just pick up your cell phone, you call somebody, and that's no big deal. Um, but Park Chan-wook really embraced it in a really uh, brilliant way. There are these really amazing scenes where whenever, when this detective is spying on this woman, on Sayot Ray, he's calling her, and all of a sudden it'll look like they're having a conversation with each other in the room. In reality, she has a phone up to her ear, and he has a phone up to his ear as well, and he's looking at her because he can see her through the window and spying on her, and she's just kind of going off and doing whatever. It's just a really fascinating way to incorporate the technology. There's also these really amazing scenes where we get uh, POVs inside of like a cell phone when like a text is sent or a video message is sent or uh, audio message. Really incredible stuff, really inventive stuff. I've never seen that. 
uh, in a film at all. And that's especially shocking considering the number of uh, social media horror films that I've seen or, or horror films I've seen that center around celebrity in the modern era, uh, in this social media TikTok era. But I just want to note here, because I didn't notice this in my, um, my rewatch, if you watch this film, please watch the sushi set that he gets immediately in the film and then um, the one that he has with his wife. Pay, pay very close attention to that. That's all I want to say if you haven't seen the film, because uh, sushi comes back up much later in the film, or, or a bit later in the film, and I don't think I made the, the connection until much later. This film, it's really interesting, because I, I had a uh, someone on Letterboxd comment this for me. They thought the film was a little too convoluted for their liking, but they really enjoyed it. I actually thought the film was a little too simple when I first watched it, until it became much more complex. I think it's a film that it's kind of like a folded piece of paper where all of a sudden you unfold it, and there's a little bit of dimension or a little bit of complexity, and it kind of unfolds and unfolds and unfolds. And the film becomes something quite different, especially by the third act. Um, the third act to this film is shocking entirely in the way that it's framed. Like I, I did not, I could not have anticipated the film was going in this direction. Um, and it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. I love the ending to this film. I love that this film took the risk that it did. Fantastic film. Again, if you want to check it out, get a movie subscription. Uh, you can get a trial kind of anywhere. Letterboxd has them. I, I used to have a link if you want to um, reach out to me if that link still works. And um, uh, check out Decision Leave. Fantastic, masterful film. All right, let's jump into the hot take because this is quite an interesting one. This is one I got a couple of months ago that I've been sitting on, and uh, I think this is a great time to bring it up. So I want to read this verbatim. This is from a follower of mine named Rain, and uh, I I've been thinking on this quite a bit. That's why I've held off on, on answering it. But they had asked the question, the inability of most modern filmmakers, or rather studios, to really reckon with true darkness and pessimism is a travesty. Many of the best films of the 20th century are deeply moving precisely because they are unflinching meditations on uncomfortable and unsettling topics. While there's still a few filmmakers working today who continue to produce incredibly moving and dark work, the increased control of marketing over the production of film has pushed out most of the truly brilliant and subversive voices, and that's a tragedy. I appreciate filmmakers like Astor and Cronenberg even more for this very reason. If they put, didn't put the or rather studios, I don't think I would agree, but because of that, uh, I, I do agree. I think studios are not really able to reckon with darkness. A lot of the moves have been made by studios, particularly, uh, I'll say this since the... I won't say the advent of the MCU, I'll say since the success of the first Avengers film. So the last decade, lots of studios like to play it safe. They like to make money. They like to invest money in these big projects because they think, oh, this will, this is what's going to make us money rather than, um, you know, a company like Disney. I think they released like 10 or a dozen films this year. Most of those were fairly big budget films. And, uh, you know, the goal is like, oh, if we, we spend all this money on these big event films, everyone will go to the theater and see all of them. And that, that was not the case this year, uh, by the way. Disney did <laughs> not all of Disney's films are successes this year. But yeah, I think a lot of studios, they want what's safe. They want IP. They want superhero. They want uh, not even rom-com. They want children's film. They want big animated. They do not want to sit in darkness. They do not want pessimism. They want their, their audience to escape. They want them to feel good. They, that, and that's it. That's the only singular feeling. They want them to have an adrenaline rush or a dopamine rush. That's it. That's all the studios really want. They're not able to have people sit in any more than that. I think pe people are absolutely able to. It's why films like Napoleon and Killers of Flower Moon and Oppenheimer, uh, and even films like Barbie, because Barbie is not an entirely um, optimistic film. It's why those films have done so, so well. 
And um, a lot of these big IP films are not necessarily doing well. Um, not that I didn't like the Marvels, but there's a reason why people weren't going out of their way to go see it right, right now. And um, it's quite sad stuff. I wish the studios took more risks. Anyways, that's all the time that we have for today's episode. I appreciate you all checking in and tuning in. Um, this was a really fun episode to do. I, I really haven't had a chance to talk about more modern films or films that have come out more recently. Some of this was a little bit complicated due to the strike, but granted, both these films are not struck films. I could have done this episode um, while the strike was happening, so uh, I'd like to shift to doing some more modern films. I still want to do the double feature. I think that's a really fantastic way to approach each episode rather than, you know, here's two random films that came out on the same day and they don't have anything to do with each other. I think it adds a little bit of continuity to the episode. I think it makes it feel a little more special. And uh, I hope that you all feel the same way, especially about this episode, because I really want to talk about both of these films. Um, we only have two more episodes for the year. I just want to name that. We're approaching the end of the year. I have two really special episodes planned. I'm really excited to talk about the uh, four films that we're talking about. Two are A24. Two are from the same director that I talk about on different weeks. And uh, that's kind of hilarious now that I think about but. Um, I hope you all enjoy what's coming next. I hope you enjoy what I'm planning for next year. I'm already deep into planning what the podcast is going to look like for season two. And uh, thanks for checking in. Haley, take us out of here. This has been the Movie Good or Movie Bad podcast, and we hope you all enjoyed that episode. Next week, the theme of the episode is From the Perspectives of Children, and James will be speaking about Aftersun and The Florida Project. Thank you all for tuning in, and we hope you join us next time.